We are two hours away from the NHL trade deadline, and it is a very special, supersized three-hour edition of Canucks Hour here for deadline day. I'm Jamie Dodd. Canucks insider Thomas Drance is my co-host. I'm here at 650 Mission Control. Drancer is down, hustling, working the phones at Rogers Arena. Of course, you can also read Drancer's work at The Athletic. Canucks Hour, as always, brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, I got the the extra-large iced coffee this morning. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. Let's have some fun here. Yeah, I just finished my large coffee myself. There we go. I don't I don't know why you're drinking iced coffee when the weather is so bad. So that's just down, how I roll. Not quite a downpour of trades yet this morning. I think we're at 10, uh, 10 with the brawn trade going through. So, uh, But that's pretty good. That's not bad. I mean, 25 trades before noon would, would sort of be my rough expectation around the league. So we'll probably have a fair bit to break down over the course of the next two hours. Let's... Let's begin with just sort of a loop around uh, the Vancouver Canucks and, and sort of what I'm hearing, where we're at, uh, just as a, a signpost to, to hammer down, hammer into the ground, and, and ground our discussion over the course of the next three hours. I'm really excited for the show, by the way. Obviously, we've, we'll have Yannick Hansen. We'll have Yannick Hansen joining us in an hour's time yep. at 11. Uh, me and Yannick Hansen will have a negativity off. It's going to be great. <laughs> you make sure to stay tuned. And then we'll have Satyar Shah come, and, and Satyar and I will will do our best with, with your help to break down, you know, what just happened. <laughs> what just happened after the deadline is passed. And then, of course, stay tuned. Uh, loaded day of programming across 650. And, and of course, we'll take Patrick Alvin's availability. Expected around 130, but could be a little bit earlier, depending on what the Canucks do, right? Um, so going to be a fascinating day for this team, particularly because of how many active situations, how many balls this organization has in the air. Now, I want to begin by letting our listeners know that from my perspective, reaching out to various contacts around the league, around the team, feels a little bit quiet this morning. Like, it feels quieter this morning than it did to me yesterday. And yesterday, of course, the Canucks ended up making two trades. Now, that doesn't mean a lot, right? There's still time to go before the deadline. Waivers aren't going to be posted for another hour. Um, you know, one thing that the Canucks have been doing is is waiting to have their prices met, right? They, they've been very patient over the course of many weeks. And I do think to some extent, probably also the last two weeks, we're kind of interested in seeing how this homestand unfolded. Uh, so, you know, not not that they've been solely patient, <laughs> but, the, but the, I think there was a little bit of a, a deviation too in terms of what their posture was, but, but they have been sticking to the idea that they need their prices met. Let's begin with the pending UFAs. So Yaroslav Halak, we've seen some pretty interesting movement already on the goalie front in the market. Marc-Andre Fleury goes to Minnesota. Um, the Minnesota Wild then send Capo their Kakinen. goaltender Capo yep. Kakinen. I was, was going to say Capo Kako, and I was like, no, that's not right. Um, so Kakinen goes to Sa- uh, San Jose. Some question about what that might mean for James Reimer, the San Jose Sharks goaltender who's had a fabulous season and would now, with Marc-Andre Fleury having moved, be probably the top goaltender available on the market. Jonas Corposalo is still out there. Yaroslav Halak is probably, you know, a C option for most teams. We'll see if something comes of that over the course of the next two hours. Of course, he has the ability to veto any trade he's involved in, so that's a three-dimensional deal. I've been trying to get updates there, but uh, but so far pretty quiet ar- around Halak. 
uh, we will see how that situation shapes up. The Tyler Mott situation is the more interesting one to me because this could go any number of ways over the course of the next two hours. And of course, it could go a third way where the team just keeps him and, and sorts this out later. But I do get the sense this morning that Tyler Mott is sort of the name most available among Canucks players. Not a huge surprise there. I think we've expected that for weeks, although I do think the team flirted with the idea of maybe keeping him as an own rental, considering how important that line has been to their success and how close they were getting to that playoff bar before the 2-3-2 and homestand over the course of the past two weeks. Now, I don't get the sense this morning that there's a ton of progress in contract talks, but I do think there's a desire on both sides to potentially do a deal if the if the money works. Now, that'll require one side or the other to move uh, toward the other one, and I do think that while they sort of wait <laughs> on that, I do I do believe that Mott has been made widely available on the trade market. He's the, he's the guy I'm hearing the most from my league contacts as is available to bidders uh, today. So we'll sort of see what the dynamic looks like there. I, my sense of it, my sense of it, and this is sort of me piecing, reading between the lines of, of what I'm hearing a bit. My sense of it is that the Canucks won't do a Mott deal unless the price is absolutely right. And I do think it would probably require them to move out money elsewhere on the roster before making that type of trade. Uh, to move out money on the roster, though, you sort of end up moving up to the to the bigger ticket items. Not, not hearing a lot of smoke around Brock Besser this morning. Um, you know, not hearing a ton of smoke around JT Miller this morning. The Connor Garland situation is by far the most interesting one to track for us over the course of the next two hours. We'll see where that goes. You know, not hard to put together a list of, of potential suitors. You've heard them all, right? The LA, Pittsburgh, and then it's the teams that, you know, we're still waiting to see them make their major move up front. The Rangers, the, the Colorado Avalanche, who, you know, I, I think have become more aggressive on the trade market based on what I'm hearing since they missed out on Claude Giroux, wondered if they, wondering if they could circle back to the Canucks here. So we'll sort of track that. And then, you know, you get to, you get to some of the Vancouver's other veteran pieces. I, I think a lot of the heat that has sort of come about the two veterans on NTCs in Vancouver, Tyler Myers and, and Tanner Pearson, I'd be, I'd be sh- gobsmacked, Jamie, if we end up talking about those trades over the course of the next two hours. You never say never, especially mm-hmm. especially in this specific time window in our business, but I would be gobsmacked by that. I think the only way that anyone's prying Luke Shen out of Vancouver is if it's a, a you know the sort of deal where you're like, well, okay, that actually does make sense. Um, team loves Luke Shen. He's on a great cap number for next year. I think there's a recognition that they need more uh, people and players like Luke Shen on, on value deals. So, um, you know, there's definitely interest. There's definitely teams calling. But I, I, my sense of it is that, um, you know, it, it would take a massive, massive haul for a player who's playing in Vancouver's top four and ticks a lot of boxes for what this organization is looking for from the people that, that represent the franchise on the ice. So I think that's sort of my quick around the horn, what I'm hearing, my best sense of it based on a variety of conversations with industry contacts, and it's going to be an interesting couple of hours. Uh, You know, if I had to handicap it, I'm sort of, I I would say I'd be slightly, slightly more surprised by a super active 
two hours of Canucks news <laughs> than I would be by a relatively restrained two hours of Canucks news. But stay tuned. We'll break it all down as it happens. Yeah, lots to get into, obviously, just even with your kind of, uh, as you said, grounding it around the horn update there. Uh, by the way, NHL trade deadline coverage all day here on Sportsnet 650 brought to you by Kintec Footwear and Orthotics. Do your feet hurt? Talk to a fitting expert today at 11 Lower Mainland locations or online at Kintec, K-I-N-T-E-C, Dot net. Let's start there with Tyler Mott, because just if you were to power rank the Canucks most likely to be traded today, I mean, I think Tyler Mott is number one with a bullet. I know it caught a lot of people's attention, including mine, when Patrick Alvin, the GM, spoke to the media yesterday following the Travis Dermott uh, acquisition, which we'll talk about in a second here. You know, he was asked about Tyler Mott and his his answer was basically, well, we'll see where it goes. And I think a lot of people, you know, they raised their eyebrows and said, okay, that sounds like maybe Mott is more likely to go than to stay. And as you said, things can change very quickly here. And I think with Mott, both a trade and an extension are the kind of thing that could be done at the 11th hour before the deadline, right? Because they're not necessarily super complicated deals compared to some of the other situations the Canucks have to navigate, like Yarrow Halak, where he has the power to veto any deal, like, you know, bigger ticket salary items, as you said, Tanner Pearson, Tyler Myers, etc. I I expect we will, if I had to bet right now, I would bet we'll see Tyler Mott go, but it is also the kind of thing that could happen, you know, right at the stroke of midnight or the stroke of noon here Pacific time on the NHL trade deadline. And, you know, as you said, what you're hearing from your industry contracts around the league is he's the player being kind of pitched and being, okay, teams are teams are aware that he's out there and they can make bids on him. And I think sometimes we get a little too caught up in parsing, you know, are they just taking calls on players or are they shopping players? But certainly if the Canucks are kind of actively, actively out there saying, hey, are you interested in Tyler Mott? What would you give us? If, if those are the kinds of calls that are being made, I think there's a very, very good chance that we do see Tyler Mott traded at some point before the deadline today. Well, yeah, and if you're making a decision on a deadline, it helps to gather as much data as you ha- as you can, right? So this is the price of, a- of extension. This is the best deal or the best offer that we have in a trade. What do we want to do? You know, that that could be for sure how this plays out. And I know Satyar Shah has suggested that once the Canucks have an offer they really like, they might go back and sort of make one final uh, team-friendly offer and say this is what it looks like, yes or no. Um, you know, a, a similar tactic to what the Canucks used with Alex Burroughs back in the day, and, and that worked out pretty well. So it's going to be interesting for sure to watch this play out, and that's the situation I think that's got the l- sort of widest array of possible paths in terms of how it's going to play out. In terms of what we're seeing in general on the market, right, I think there was some concern particularly after the Josh Manson return among sellers that the, the, yep. the, the prices were going to be slanted in, in favor of buyers. And, and one piece of feedback I got in the wake of that deal that's proved prophetic as, as trade acquisition prices have, have increased in the weekend before the deadline. And we've seen 22 moves since Friday. So we've seen a fair bit of action over the course of the weekend leading up to this NHL trade deadline. One thing that was sort of suggested to me was that the Manson price reflected name value and name value only, an empty calorie type acquisition versus, you know, a Brandon Hagel type acquisition where, where the star power is not there. The name recognition might not be there for hockey fans, but within the industry, he's seen as a guy who can help you win in, in a pretty meaningful way. So, you know, we have seen prices increase. I am curious to see if that impacts Vancouver's decision-making because, you know, I still think when you look through this roster and when you look at their situation, right, Dom Lecision's model today 
in the wake of, you know, the Canucks losing four or five games here, has them at 8%. 8% to make the playoffs. They are 49% likely to finish fifth in the Pacific. So this is a team that's six times more likely to be fifth in the Pacific than they are to make the playoffs at this point. And they're right pressed up against the upper limit. Although they did save $1.5 million over the weekend with a savvy set of uh, trades to swap out Hammonick's salary and bring in Dermott. And, you know, the problems that we've been discussing, both in terms of where this roster is at relative to the rest of the league, uh, where this roster is at relative to the rest of their division, uh, the lack of cap space, the lack of picks, the lack of prospects, the lack of quality young players in the pipeline that you can see coming up and sort of building out the core of what you hope is the next great Canucks team. I mean, there's a lot of distance for this organization to travel. Is it sufficient to be relatively conservative at this deadline? You know, is it cons- is it sufficient considering all the work that this club's going to have to do, have to do to unmake a team that I think's proven to not quite be good enough to really contend? Right, this is an all-in team, right? Like this is a team that's already done their like buying at the deadline style moves last offseason, right? Like <laughs> that was an all-in offseason. It's resulted in this. And it's going to require a fair bit of work to get things back on track. You know, for me, I, I sort of worry that a, a conservative deadline, and yes, their big pieces are under team control beyond the season, but, you know, is it a Band-Aid on a wound that probably needs to be cauterized with fire? <laughs> I mean, that's sort of my concern as I watch this deadline unfold and as I hear, you know, not no buzz, but certainly not as much buzz today as I heard around this team yesterday prior to the two trades uh, that they made. The point about prices on the market at this deadline and how the the uh, perception of what those prices are and whether it's a seller's or a buyer's market has kind of shifted a lot since the Colorado Avalanche acquired Josh Manson, and now you see some of the deals getting done, and you really like the return that the selling team is getting. And I do wonder... You know, with a player like Luke Shen, for example, right, where there are obvious reasons that the Canucks would like to keep him beyond this trade deadline because he checks a lot of boxes, because he's on such a reasonable number for them next year as they try to rebuild their defense core, as they try to move some money out of uh, away from the blue line. You know, he's a valuable piece to have that doesn't cost you very much at all. But I do wonder, you know, this is the time. There's always a few deals right before the deadline, and it's frequently for depth defensemen where you look at it and you say, holy cow, they got what for Luke Shen? That's an incredible deal for the selling team, right? Like that happens very, very frequently at the deadline. And I wonder with some of the uptick in prices if we that we have seen, if that does, you know, just increase the likelihood of something, you know, that some team does come calling the Canucks with an offer they just can't refuse, uh, despite how much they like Luke Shen. Uh, this text has come in a, a couple times. Uh, first unsigned, how much talk slash smoke was there before the Hammonick trade? Uh, and then Jim from North Van says the Hamnick deal was quiet beforehand. Do you see any more salary dump surprise moves? So let's just talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There let- was a lot of smoke around the Canucks yesterday morning. It just wasn't around Hamnick specifically. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise because effectively the Canucks found themselves in the middle of facilitating a trade that ended up including four different franchises, right? Like Seattle, Toronto, Ottawa, and Vancouver were all kind of different parts of the same series of, of trades, right? I mean, it wasn't a four-team four trade, but it was effectively Pretty close. four teams involved in making one big trade happen. And, and in that, as that part of the equation, the Canucks were able to, you know, offload Hammonick's salary 
and acquire Dermot while sort of uh, laundering a pick from Ottawa to Toronto. Not quite, because they didn't trade the same pick, but, you know, effectively that was sort of Vancouver's part of the trade, and it made a ton of sense for Vancouver to get in on that action the way they did. So there wasn't a ton of noise around Hamannick prior to the deal. I think the industry was rather surprised that they were able to get out of that contract without taking money back. But there was a lot of smoke around the Canucks specifically, um, you know, being active, being prepared to make moves. When I woke up Sunday morning, I was pretty surprised, um, you know, at how active my phone was and at how, you know, clear it was that the club was on the verge of something. Um, This morning, you know, I'm not getting the same level uh, of that, but that's also because everyone's in war rooms, right? (laughs) Everyone around the NHL is in war rooms. A little bit more locked down today, typically speaking. So uh, perhaps it's that, but I I do have a different sense around this team today than I did yesterday morning for whatever that's worth. Just presenting that as a data point. As for the Canucks' ability to shed additional salaries with, you know, (laughs) without taking money back, We'll see. I do think one of the reasons that you've heard teams that are not going for it linked to Connor Garland in in various rumor and trade reporting over the course of the past few months is, you know, that might be, let's call it a reverse OEL, right? That might be one device, a, a, a good a good relatively young player on a good efficient contract uh, tied to a contract the club wants to get rid of as a way of, you know, Uh, as like part of the return, right? Like part of the return for this guy is you take that uh, additional contract that is inconvenient for us. Um, You know, I do think that's been one of the reasons why you've seen teams like non-traditional buyers potentially attached to a, to a player like Garland. So uh, we'll, we'll see. I'd, I'd be surprised. I mean, I was shocked that the Canucks were able to move out Hamnick without taking money back. I thought that was a a fast, a fantastic piece of work. I would have probably liked the trade even more if they hadn't, taken Dermot back if it had just been a pick in three million in cap space I probably would have preferred that uh, even though I, I have a lot of time for Travis Dermot as a as an affordable gamble for this team and and, and a player who he's gonna he's gonna bring so much skating speed to the back end and to a back end group that just has, has had so little sort of push <laughs> with, with their feet from the back end I think it's gonna be I think he's going to be really liked by Canucks fans just because of how much his game is is going to feel distinct from everything else the Canucks have on the back end outside of Quinn Hughes. So I like that gamble. I, I think I liked the Hamannick part of the trade even more. Uh, we'll see. If they can pull off another deal like that, I think that would be a, a tremendous boon to the you know first major NHL event of the Jim Rutherford era. The other thing I'll say about Dermot that I like is, you know, people focus on the the cap space savings for next year, but he's also an RFA at the end of that deal. So there's team control even beyond next year, which I think is an interesting uh, facet of the deal from a Canucks perspective, right? You have a chance to potentially, you know, if as we heard from Alvin, their pro scouts really like him, their analytics department really like him. If you think there's a long-term fit there, you have a chance to keep him with your team, you know, on a medium or long-term basis, potentially at a reasonable number because he's an RFA and you do have that team control, which I think is an interesting element of it. Uh, Clayton texts in, it's honestly unreal that they traded Hamannick. It doesn't even make sense for Ottawa, LOL. And yeah, look, my reaction when I saw on Twitter, you know, the first reports, Hamannick to Ottawa, the first thing I did was pull up Cap Friendly and say, okay, which contract with money on the books for next year is Ottawa sending back to Vancouver, right? Like, what, right. what, what is the fit here? What is going to make sense? And then when it turned out that wasn't happening, 
I was very, very surprised. And look, hey, there's only one Ottawa Senators in the league, right? So let, let's uh, let's keep that caveat in <laughs> mind. But I do think it's an important lesson that, as you said, this is the silly season, and surprises happen. So I'm not saying, oh, hey, they moved Tan- they moved Travis Hamonic. That means they're going to move Tanner Pearson at this deadline. But the lesson that I'm taking is. You know, it only takes one team. It only takes one team to talk themselves into veteran player X, right? And in uh, in Ottawa, part of it was, hey, there was a connection between uh, Jack Capuano and Travis Hamannick, who had, who had been together in with the Islanders, and he really pushed for him, and that made them feel good. And it only takes one team to have that sort of connection and think that they have special insight that everyone else is missing, and you never know what kind of deal could get done. So again, I'm not saying it's a it's a guarantee or a sure thing or maybe even more likely than not, but I think it's a good reminder that surprises happen. It's the trade deadline. There are some funky things that teams get in their heads sometimes. Well, and you know, it's funny because Ottawa, I thought the Hamannick trade was a completely baffling one from the senators and then they get, go out and get really good value in my opinion for Nick Paul. Like I think Matthew Joseph's a really nice piece for them. And as Andy Strickland out of uh, St. Louis reported today, you know, the the Tampa Bay Lightning kind of viewed Nick Paul and and Tyler Mott as you know like complementary type pieces, right? Like they were the same type of ad that they as as they were viewing it. Um, you know, you you, you wonder if the Canucks could have done that deal. I mean, maybe they were worried about Matthew Joseph's arb case, it's going to be a strong one, particularly considering his scoring numbers. But, you know, he's a really good young player. He's only 25, uh, you know, has some speed, has some physical value, has made some skill plays in really high leverage moments. Like, there's a lot to like there. So it's an interesting dynamic at this time of year, too, where, you know, I didn't like one piece of Senator's business, but I really liked the other. Um, so, you know, we'll see what, we'll see what the Canucks can find and take advantage of, because I do think you're right. You know, we've talked about this so much, but the art of making a good trade in the NHL is how well can you solve another team's problems and can you get even more right in return because you're solving multiple ones, just like the Anaheim Ducks showed us with the Hampus Lindholm trade where they take back John Moore and then we're all gobsmacked by the return, but it's because they facilitated an acquisition that the Bruins saw as long-term by taking on a bad salary as well. Canucks obviously don't have the same level of cap flexibility to do that type of problem solving for their trade partners, but, you know, finding ways to be creative, net assets, clear cap space. Uh, Canucks have already done a bit of it, cleared 1.5 million in cap space, got a, got a player I view as an upgrade, um, you know, for their trouble, uh, cheaper, younger, faster. You love that combination of attributes. And, and so it was good work, a good start for the Canucks on Sunday, but I still think this team needs an awful lot more. Like there needs to be something in my view, a little bit more dramatic to clear the decks here over the course of the next 90 minutes. It's going to be fascinating to watch it play out. And just to your point about the nature of NHL trades being problem-solving, again, the Ottawa example, you know, sometimes teams have things that they regard as problems internally that outside we don't necessarily see it that way, right? Like, we didn't know that Ottawa saw, oh, hey, we need a a right-handed veteran defenseman on our team next year as a problem that needed to be solved at this deadline, but obviously they did internally, or at least they were willing to regard it as a problem to be solved when Travis Hamanick became available for them. So you never know exactly what teams are thinking at this time of year, and that's why sometimes we do see these kind of of out-of-left-field surprise moves. And And just the other thing I'll say on that point, when you're talking about a guy like Tyler Moss, or a guy like Luke Shen, there's not really questions of fit for those players, right? Like, 
Mott and Shen fit on the roster of just about any contending team. You know, everyone needs depth defensemen. Everyone needs depth forwards uh, that can help you kill penalties and play with speed and energy like Tyler Mott. So, again, those are the kinds of deals that, to me, they can come together late because there's so many potential teams that could theoretically be interested and they're not necessarily the most complicated deals to get done. But we will see. We will see what the Canucks uh, do get done here ahead of the deadline. Now just about 90 minutes away from the end of the NHL trade deadline, we will keep talking about some of the other potential trade targets that the Canucks have available right now. We'll take a look at some of the other deals around the less, the rest of the league, too. Uh, it is a special supersized edition of the Canucks Hour. And remember, NHL trade deadline coverage brought to you by Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Do your feet hurt? Talk to a fitting expert today at 11 lower mainland locations or online at kintec.net. Back, back, uh... Next, with more NHL trade deadline coverage on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. That's awesome. That's good. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour trade deadline special here on the NHL trade deadline. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Trance with you all the way up until 1 o'clock. And a reminder, uh, in just about, just about half an hour at 11 o'clock, former Canucks forward and Sportsnet 650 contributor Yannick Hansen will be joining me in studio for a whole hour of trade deadline analysis and reaction with Yannick Hansen. So you're not going to want to miss that one. Now, Drancer, the, the interesting thing with the Hamannick and Dermott trades is, you know, it put into action a lot of things we've heard from this management group, from Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford, right? Getting younger, uh, clearing cap space, getting faster. The priorities that they have told us about, they executed with that series of deals. Now, <laughs> yeah, as you think about, okay, how can they continue to execute those priorities at this deadline? You know, you look at some of the most obvious trade candidates, like Tyler Mott, Okay, helps you bring in assets, but obviously doesn't contribute to your cap space in the summer. Uh, Kind of does because you're not signing him, but, you know, he's a UFA, right? So it's not as if you're getting rid of a commitment that you already have on the books next year. You know, Luke Shen signed to a very reasonable deal, so doesn't necessarily help you create cap space. Yaro Halak, yes, if they're able to find someone to take on the bonus or if they're able to clear cap space in another way uh, where they can, you know, pay his, uh, his bonus this year instead of next year. So you start to kind of think about... Okay, who can they plausibly move to keep pursuing that goal of creating a cushion against the salary cap, of of opening up that salary cap space? And one of the names that has come up, and as you mentioned in the first segment, interest has maybe started to pick pick up around the league in the player, uh, is Connor Garland. Frank Saravelli, of course, daily face-off NHL insider, was on with Halford and Bruff this morning, and he said in his words, there's a decent possibility that Connor Garland is moved, and then you also you're talking about people like Brock Besser potentially, and then you're into you know Tyler Myers, Tanner Pearson, where it would theoretically be more difficult to move a player like that. Where do you think things stand currently with Connor Garland and the potential that he is dealt at this deadline, Drancer? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's the most likely of the big ticket items, but you know, there's only 90 minutes to go, and it would be a complex deal one way or another. So, you know, we'll see. I, I, I'm I'm reluctant to handicap it beyond saying that that is the deal that would surprise me the least in terms of what will make me, you know, 
like make the windshield wiper sound effects and rub my eyes before making sure that it's from a verified account <laughs> when it pops across my Twitter feed, the Garland trade would be the least surprising of the big names. Like I'd be shocked at this point uh, by by Besser or Miller, but a uh, Garland one, I'd say okay, I, I I'm not stunned that that's occurred. So I, I don't want to put a percentage on it. I don't want to tip my hand one way or the other. Uh, we're 90 minutes out from the deadline of avoided looking too silly to this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to risk it now. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the Garland one is definitely the one that's most out there. And yet, you know, from from what I can tell, like, it remains quiet around the Canucks. Even even some teams that had been interested had, had thrown a line in the pond earlier in the process, um, you know, don't, don't seem to have much going on with Vancouver. So we'll see where this goes. We'll see where this develops. But, yeah, that's definitely the one... That's definitely the one situation that not just this is not just me. This is based on industry chatter, you know, based on I think the the sense around uh, various players' camps. Like I think that's the one that people are are eyeing as as the most likely of the big ticket items. Should the Canucks end up moving in that direction? But but again, it's pretty quiet around this team right now. And and like with so many of their players, with Connor Gollard for me, it does seem like. There's a certain logic to not dealing him at the deadline, even if you decide that's the route you want to go to free up cap space. Because as you said, that's a more complicated deal than just, you know, trading pending UFA X uh, for a couple of draft picks in return. Connor Garland has a lot more term left. He's young. He's a very effective player. So to get value back, it's not as easy as, as I said, you know, a second and a third for an expiring UFA uh, that you're dealing to a contender. No. And it's also the kind of thing where, and this we've heard, you know, teams that aren't going to be in the playoffs this year linked to Connor Garland that have interest in Connor Garland. New Jersey comes to mind, right? And so you wonder, will the market for Connor Garland services be equally as robust in the summer as it would be at this deadline? Or at the very least, will you have kind of the breathing room and the time uh, to work out a deal that makes more sense for you, to make sure you're getting appropriate value back for a player that has a lot of unique attributes con- con- compared to other players that frequently move at the deadline. Like, Garland is not your classic deadline-type deal, and I wonder if, even if there is buzz out there about him, if it's more likely that we see something happen with Garland in the summer as opposed to in the next 90 minutes here. I think that's true across the board for the big-ticket items, but yeah, with, with Garland in Garland's case in particular, like, no one is saying... Oh, but teams would really value that fifth playoff run. <laughs> you know, there's enough, yes, there, yes. there's enough term here that, you know, his value is not impacted one way or another by the deadline. If a team was to, you know, pounce on that deal and, and make the Canucks the sort of offer that they'd, you know, be keen to accept, it, it really would have to be, you know, the, a massive one. And, and and that offer is likely to still be available to them at the draft. There's no There's no rush whatsoever on the... On the Garland front, so we'll we'll sort of see where this plays out. I, I, you know, the fact that it's quiet around this team, the fact that the industry doesn't seem to have a ton of insight into exactly what their posture is in the hours before the deadline, that could just be the Canucks running a tight ship. Maybe they've found a partner, and it's about sort of haggling through the specific details. For all we know, uh, but the, you know, the the fact is is that I think for all of these situations, and I think this has been apparent for a few weeks, you know, outside of Mott. The team has time. They may well use it. There may be far more dramatic changes made to made to this roster following the season before the draft. You know, in that sort of traditional reset your your decks or clear your decks a part of the hockey calendar. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see. I just I do think though that where this team is at, right? And it's so important to note 
where this team is at. Like, I, I kind of think this road trip played out – sorry, this road trip, this homestand played out in a deeply troubling way on a number of fronts. First of all, you know, we're seeing Oliver ekman Larson's effectiveness really drop off, and he's been so good this season. Like, to the point where I'd say – for most of this year, he's been at like the 98th percentile of what you could have reasonably hoped for in acquiring him, right? He's, he's spent much of this year being one of the best shutdown defenders in the sport, right? Like, that's how good he's been. He's been an absolute beast. And his work with Tyler Myers since Bruce Boudreaux took over on that top pair, facing tough minutes, that's been, that's been such a massive part of what drove Vancouver's, you know, 37-game run uh, of just excellent form under Boudreaux. And yet... As we've watched this homestand and got the sense that he's battling injury, right? And gotten the sense that, you know, the the, the mobility doesn't quite look like it, it did earlier in the year. You know, this is year one. Like, this is year one of a six-year commitment, right? At, at $7.26 million. And durability is one of those skills that doesn't tend to get better with age, right? So, I, I mean, I think there's storm clouds rising, in terms of that deal and how it's likely to age. And that's no surprise. I mean, he plays really tough minutes, a really tough position, and he's at the age where, you know, players' effectiveness can drop off. So, you know, we've seen that play out. We've seen Elias Pettersson miss a couple games and then get back in the lineup and not quite look as dynamic as he did for 25 games once he put the wrist injury behind him earlier this year. So, you know, I think there's significant concerns there too uh we saw this team lean heavily on Bo Horvat and JT Miller to produce but but outside of that outside of Quinn Hughes outside of Thatcher Demko being stupendous like he was so good last night and they still lose 3-2 um you know I, I I think we've seen a lot of the issues that we thought this team might have especially how permissive they've been defensively um, but also how speed can expose their lineup. I think we've seen a lot of that laid bare and made plain. And and if you're going to get better, like, you look at the Anaheim Ducks, the Canucks are three points clear of the Ducks, and the Ducks have added three second-round picks, a top defense prospect, a first-round pick, an additional fourth, and an additional future asset uh, over the course of the past four or five days. And when you look at these two rosters and when you look at their books, like, the Ducks have far less inefficient money committed to term than Vancouver does. They probably have... You know, if not quite equal, like pretty close to the same level of, you know, jaw-dropping star-level talent already on their roster. I mean, you consider Drysdale and Zegris and Troy Terry, you know, yeah, you'd probably prefer Pedersen and Hughes and Demko, but but it's not by, you know, a, a massive amount, right? It's it's at least an argument. At least it's an argument you could have, uh, you know, at the bar with a, with a Ducks fan, should you find one. And so, you know, I do think you have to be mindful of the fact that this team really does need to be proactive in in resetting the books. Now, if it doesn't happen before noon, you know, that's not the end of the world. There is still time. Uh, Some of these big ticket moves could happen at the draft, right? There's team control on most of these situations, with the exception of Halak and Mott. And I think that's why our eyes are in particular on those two expiring veteran players. But, you know, beginning beginning to carve out the type of flexibility this organization is going to need to catch up not just to Vegas and Calgary and Edmonton in the now uh, and LA in the now but with teams like Anaheim and Los Angeles that are so well positioned for the future you know I, I think it requires something pretty dramatic 
And if we don't see that, you know, I, I do think we're going to have to. Like, it really does raise the stakes for what the Canucks are going to need to accomplish this offseason. Uh, just on the OEL front, uh, earlier in the show, Jay and Calgary texted in, OEL's buyout is not terrible after next year. Do you see that happening, considering age, contract, etc.? And look, that that's a discussion uh, for another Jay, uh, day, Jay. But, I mean... At some point, I do think that becomes a realistic possibility just because of all the factors that Jay lays out there. And as you said, you know, look, OEL certainly seems like he's battling something right now, and that's why his effectiveness has declined so much from where it was earlier in the season. But again, when you have a defenseman who's played as much as he has, who's played as many minutes as he has, big, heavy minutes in the NHL, as he gets into his 30s and later you're going to see him banged up sometimes, right? So that's kind of part, that's going to be part of the OEL experience in all likelihood. And look, again, I, I certainly have no special insight to this, but I did think it was interesting that Jay brought up the possibility of a buyout. I do wonder down the road if that becomes something the Canucks have to explore. Drancer, when we look at the, not just the two games on the weekend, but just in general, how this homestand played out and certainly how the last three games played out going back to the game against Detroit. You know, it's not just that they lost all three games, only picking up one point in overtime against Buffalo, three games that they desperately needed to get good results in in order to hang in the playoff race. I think it was also the manner in which they lost them, right, in which they left their coach extremely frustrated after every game. They did not look particularly good in any of the performances. And as you said, a lot of the concerns that people would have had about this roster going into the season kind of came to bear in these three games. Do you have a sense of internally for the Canucks management, for the Canucks hockey operations department, how much that run of results going into the deadline, how much, if at all, it changed their perspective on what needs to be done going into this NHL trade deadline? Um, you know, I, I'm sure it did to some extent. It has to have. I mean, if they win all three games, you know, they're five points ahead of where they are now. They're what, one point out of a playoff spot tonight today? I, I'm sure that would change the conversation. Plus, we'd be looking at a team that had gone, you know, um, five, two and one on their homestand, right? And and was now something like twenty five and and nine <laughs> under Bruce Boudreau. I mean, it, it's impossible not to be influenced to some extent by those by by a run of results like that. So yeah, I do think it would have changed the conversation, but I don't know that it would have changed the conversation significantly. And, you know, I, I do think that management knows that they can't just sort of make emotional decisions here based off of, you know, short-term outcomes. However, however, I do think this organization has certainly a habit, I suppose, of, you know, wanting to expedite things. Right. And I think you saw that yesterday, too. Right. With the with the fact that they flipped the third round pick immediately for Travis Dermott. You know, there are echoes of the early part of the Jim Benning era where the club targeted young players to try and expedite a rebuild. And I do think that the depths of what the reloading process that Jim Rutherford goes through will be constrained to some extent by the organization's reluctance to take the type of step back that in other markets we've seen teams sort of take to, you know, make sure that there's some value rapidly coming into their organization. Uh, you know, I, I suspect we are going to see this team try to expedite things, try to be competitive as quickly as next year, maybe the year after. Um, you know, I, I'd be shocked at this point, to be totally honest with you, Jamie, if the Canucks were willing to 
take a significant step back next season, even if, in my view, it's kind of your best way forward. So, you know, we'll we'll sort of see where this plays out. Did, how much did the impact of this road trip and the struggles play play a how much will that play a factor in in the team's moves i suppose we'll see like we're going to get our answers in the next 75 minutes because to this point with you know just shipping hamnick out and and acquiring dermot you know that's player in player out like i don't even think you'd look at that as a selling move but not a pure selling move anyway so uh, you know i i'm reluctant to give my sort of full diagnosis because we're going to see the full picture within the next couple hours and then we're going to know uh, exactly how much or exactly how this team is positioned and postured uh, as a result of where they're at in the standing. So we've had a bit of a lull, not just with the Canucks, but with the uh, the yeah, NHL no, as no a whole. No trade since we got yeah, on the air. No man. new trade since we got on the air, which is just incredible. Thanks to all the uh, NHL front offices out there for doing us a solid. But um, <laughs> Alfred and Bruff jinxed us with yeah, all their talk about did. how there was going to be a big trade the moment they got off. They did, but uh, look, I do wonder if we're you know we're just kind of in the calm before the storm, and maybe I say that with more wishful thinking than anything else. But as we look at how the weekend played out, where we did see some significant moves. Moves. Obviously, Claude Giroux to Florida, uh, Hampus Lindholm to the Boston Bruins, uh, even earlier today with Marc-Andre Fleury going to Minnesota. I've seen some, we've seen some teams, and I look at Tampa, I look at Florida, even Boston with the Hampus Lindholm uh, acquisition have been very, very aggressive. But I do still think there are other teams out there that you would expect to be aggressive. The reporting has been that they want to be aggressive, and they have not done anything yet. And I'm thinking specifically of the New York Rangers there, who, as we all know, have cap space, have some very desirable young assets uh, to play with as well. I'm also thinking of a team like Colorado. I mean, we saw Colorado do the Tyson Joes for Nico Sturm swap, and yeah, that frees up cap space for them next year. It also frees up cap space for them this year. And my expectation when they made that trade was, okay, there were working on something bigger. Now, that was probably Claude Giroux, and they, and they don't end up getting him. He decides to go to Florida instead. But I look at those two teams in particular and wonder if there's a chance as we get into the closing stages of the NHL trade deadline here, just over an hour to go, yeah, we've hit a little bit of a lull, but I think there are still enough teams that have to be looking around at what other contenders have done to really load up and thinking, okay, it's time to get serious and it's time to take a swing for the fences here going into well, the playoffs. Well, at least we got a trade here. So Josh Brown is going to the Boston Bruins for Zach Sanishin, who is, of course, uh, legendarily yep. in the trio of picks that the Bruins completely duffed, um, thankfully missing out on picking like Connor and Barzil and maybe Besser and building a dynasty. Um, but Josh Brown to the Bruins, that's a massive body, right? A big right-handed player with him and, and uh, Carlo and McAvoy on your right side. I mean, that's a fair bit of beef on the Bruins' back end. Um, you know, a, a modest return for Josh Brown. Uh, Senators basically take a flyer on Sinitian, who's never really been able to establish himself at the NHL level, in, in addition to getting a fifth rounder. That's a pretty good bit of business for Ottawa, too. You know, when you think about um, when you think about what they've now hauled in, uh, with the exception of the Hamannick deal that I really don't understand. Although, I suppose Hamannick provides them cover for Josh Brown, right? Sure. I, I'm sure they'd view that as an upgrade. I don't know that I do, but I'm sure they would. So... You know, interesting bit of news out of Ottawa, and that at least breaks the 45-minute lull. One thing to note as the trades have slowed to a crawl over the course of the past hour or so, Jamie, waivers are posted in 12 minutes, right? And there are some ramifications for that, particularly for a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs who placed Jacob Mrazek on waivers the other day, right? So we'll sort of see 
exactly where we land in 12 minutes because that will materially impact the cap space that some teams have. Uh, will Hari Sateri clear waivers and, and add a backup to Toronto, or will he be claimed in the event that a team has put in a claim for Sateri, but a team further up the pecking order gets him, does that maybe cause them to call San Jose about Reimer or Vancouver about Halak, right? There are all sorts of implications from that. Vegas has players on waivers, so that'll impact their cap space. Calgary has players on waivers, that'll impact their cap space. Edmonton has Kyle Turris on waivers, so whether he clears or not will also impact their cap space. That all happens in 10 minutes. Maybe there's a deal or two that sort of hangs on that, hinges on that, particularly, and I know that sounds silly but you know in this contemporary hard capped league uh, a guy clearing waivers that extra million that extra million and a half or a million and a bit that's created as a result of being able to reassign a guy uh, that can make all the difference between enabling a deal to go through or not and so perhaps we'll see more uh, you know when we come back from our next break perhaps we'll see the activity start to pick up and 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 then I'd remind people of one other thing Jamie which is the deadline will hit at noon Yes. But trades will trickle through thereafter. As, right? as veteran NHL trade deadline watchers know, just because it's struck <laughs> yeah. noon doesn't mean it's over. Doesn't mean so, it's over. We're still so, going to see more deals come in. So long as you get the facts in, so the trade call can occur. And, and the trade calls themselves, like there's a long queue at this time of year, right? It takes a long time sometimes. You've kind of agreed to a deal. Sometimes you're waiting an hour and a half, two hours, uh, just to get on the trade call and, and make it official. So, um, you know, the, the fact is, is that, we may see some deals uh, occur a little bit on a sort of a more belated basis over the course of the next hour, but then trickling through for another half hour when we're on the radio with Satyar Shaw. So yeah. lots of time left, lots of time left on the clock. Canucks haven't done anything yet today. They made two trades yesterday. Uh, an interesting bit of news we've seen, or an interesting series of transactions. We've seen this team clear salary now, $1.5 million. You know, I think we'd like to see what was the what was the benchmark we set. What was them, your number? Jamie, Se- couple, seven point five, something like that. So six million to go for me to give them my stamp of approval. Um, you know, so we've seen them clear some cap space. We've seen them target one young player between the ages of twenty and twenty-five. Right? They've telegraphed their intentions. They've begun to deliver on it. We'll see if they can do more of those types of moves over the course of the next hour, hour and a half. Uh, lots of great texts coming in. This one unsigned says, don't worry, guys, I have to jump on a conference call at 11 a.m. All the trades are coming then. And yeah, with, with, with the, uh, with the waiver wire update, as you said as well, we could see some movement. This one says the other team that needs a big move is Carolina. Lots of cap space and young assets. They need a scoring forward. The interesting thing of Carolina is always their reluctance to go all in on rentals, which we've seen in the past. And their front office in general just approaches things uh, in a different way than a lot of any other NHL front offices. So I think it's a good point, but you never quite know what Carolina is going to do uh, on the same at the same time. And Jesse texts in, conspiracy theory, Colorado put Bowen Byram in a regular jersey instead of a non-contact jersey at practice this morning to make him more appealing for a trade. And uh, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but it did catch my eye that Bowen deeply, Byram was a full, wishful. Yeah, was a full uh, participant at practice can today. I, can I read one quickly? Can Go you for guys it. discuss the Bruins and DeBrusque? Um, you know, not not a big fan of DeBrus, this texter says. Would rather keep Garland, assuming that's who's going the other way. Um, and then has opinions, too, on Vancouver Giants player uh, Fabian Lysel. Um Doesn't seem like someone he'd be excited for. But I want to pivot off that because the Bruins made a pretty interesting maneuver, re-signing 
uh, Jake DeBrusque to a two-year, $4 million contract that makes him easier to move because it removes the qualifying offer factor. It adds certainty into, DeBru- into the DeBrusque equation, right? Now, DeBrusque is two years, $4 million, and you know that. There's no arbitration hearing. There's no... Uh, there's no sort of administrative tax that you're assuming should you trade for DeBrusque. That's kind of locked in now at two years, four million. Um, you know, I, I do think the Canucks have had interest in the past. I, I'm not sure how extant that is at the moment, but, um, you know, a, an interesting maneuver and one that poses some pretty significant questions about the Canucks and Besser, right? Is this something that we could see like the sign and trade type possibility with the Canucks and Besser? Potentially, but it's really important to remember that DeBrusque's QO was 4.44. Besser's is 7.5. There's a world of difference between those two numbers, Jamie, right? And and that completely alters the leverage point from uh, Besser's side. And so, you know, a, a really interesting maneuver and one that I wanted to bring up because it does have echoes or ramifications for a really interesting situation that the Canucks themselves will have to navigate. Um, you know, not just at this deadline, but beyond and into the summer um but you know not necessarily like a prescriptive path that i think the club could mimic yeah it would be it'd be much more difficult to pull that off with besser than it was for the bruins and debrusque and i'll just say we've heard the debrusque and vancouver connections and you know i've even seen people speculate about a connor garland deal that deal right and presumably there would be more coming back from boston but that doesn't make a ton of sense to me you're you're not getting no. younger you're not getting significantly cheaper garland's <laughs> no. the better player if yep. if that's the package that's a head scratcher for me i don't think that will materialize but the connection and between those two players has never made a ton of sense to me. I don't, I don't think it accomplishes really any of the goals uh, that Canucks management have set out for themselves going into this deadline and into the offseason. Uh, it is trade deadline special here on the Canucks Hour with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance with you for two more hours. Only one hour to go until the deadline. We'll see what happens. And former Canucks forward and Sportsnet 650 contributor Yannick Hansen is going to join us for the full hour next. So if you have thoughts, questions uh, that you want to run by Yannick, hit us up. 650-650. We're back with Yannick Hansen and more trade deadline coverage on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.